The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing today in our study that we've entitled The Transformed Life. And we're taking some time to work through these final verses of Ephesians chapter 4 to assess what a changed life through Christ looks like. We want to look specifically at some of the areas of our life that we want to make sure are in place so that we can demonstrate the reality of our salvation by living out a transformed life that's been accomplished for us through Christ. I'd like to read Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, and then would you please follow along as I do so. Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear." Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You will remember that this passage is Paul's description of what happens when someone truly comes to Christ. He is describing for us here the transformed life. He's describing for us what happens when you truly come to know Christ as your Savior. You you put off the old and you put on the new. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 says you put off your old self, that old sinful man, that old nature, that old part of you, that old fallen flesh and the old dirty garments of your old nature. That old man is gone. It's put off like you take off a dirty shirt. And in its place, verse 24 says, you put on the new self, this new person, this whole new entity, this new creation with a a new character and a new person. This is who you are in Christ. This is your position in Christ. You are a new creature. Fabulous. And this is how you know you're saved. You never, know, you never go back to some past event or some date in your Bible or some spiritual experience that you once had and say, yep, I'm saved because 50 years ago or 20 years ago or five years ago I had this experience. None of that confirms your salvation. The way you know you're saved is to look at the present pattern of your life. Is my life different? Am I separate? Am I, am I changed? Are my desires different? Are my passions different? Are my words different? Are my actions different? Are my motivations and desires? Is that all changed? Not perfectly, for we still sin. But progressively, are you noticing changes in your life and you continue to see Christ in you? Well, Paul wants to get very specific. He doesn't want to just leave this in the ethereal realm. He wants us to know very specifically what this looks like. He gives us a few tests. Some illustrations of what the transformed life looks like. In verse 25, we saw the first one. And that was that we were to replace lying with the truth. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore, if you truly are a new creation, and you are, then it's going to show up in your speech. You're going to be truth tellers. 
You're going to be the kind of people who have abandoned lies and you've entered into the domain of truth and you're going to speak truth to one another. That was the first illustration we saw a couple weeks ago. Last week we saw the second one in verses 26 and 27. And we said that we need to replace sinful anger with a controlled temper. He says in verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. We said that there is a place for righteous anger. You should be righteously indignant about certain things that you see in our society. You should get angry at sin. Specifically, you should be angry at your sin. But we have to be careful that that anger doesn't spill over into sinful anger. Where it becomes irrational. Where it becomes fleshly. So we're to be those who put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. This morning we come to a third illustration of the transformed life. And it's found in verse 28. Paul says this. He says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. The third area that Paul wants us to be aware of in the transformed life is that we replace stealing with sharing. His point here is that we need to be those who are believers who are characterized by hard work and diligent and labor so that we can share with others in need rather than be those who steal. Now, I normally would not preach a message on stealing. Not a topic I think much about, probably not a topic you've thought much about. This is the joy of expository preaching. You just work through the text and you deal with the next issue that comes the way, our way. And so this morning we want to devote our whole time to looking at what a life transformed by Jesus Christ looks like in terms of not stealing and instead sharing. The more I studied this this week, the more I realized this is a serious issue in our culture. Let me give you some illustrations, some uh, examples, and these are things that you're going to be very certain of and clear on, but certainly we see and hear of burglary happening frequently in our society. We live in a place where cars are stolen, where houses are broken into, where people are mugged, where banks are robbed on a regular basis, and when we think of stealing, this is the kind of stealing that we normally think of, the kind of gross violations of this principle, those who will go in and commit armed robbery or car theft. Do you know that there's a video game now called Grand Theft Auto, and you can practice your thievery skills? I wouldn't recommend it, but apparently you can do that very popular video game that that you can engage in, but this, this is how common and how familiar our society is with this whole idea of robbery and burglary. There's also the whole area of shoplifting, looting, taking things that are not yours. And this is one of those forms of stealing that's not committed by the gross, vile criminals. It's committed by those who are what we would call average citizens. And this is an issue of epidemic proportions. I was reading this week that more than $13 billion dollars worth of goods are stolen every year in our country alone. That amounts to $35 million in products stolen every day in our culture. And much of that stolen by the employees who work there. In some large stores, up to a third of the price of the merchandise is used to cover theft losses. So when you go pay X amount of dollars, in some cases, up to a third of that is simply to cover the losses incurred by theft. 
There are approximately 27 million shoplifters in our nation today. More than 10 million people in the last five years have been caught shoplifting. They steal from all types of stores, department stores, specialty stores, supermarkets, drug stores, discounters, music stores, convenience stores, and thrift shops. And there's no profile that you can say that fits a shoplifter. There are men who shoplift and women who shoplift. 25% of shoplifters are kids. 75% are adults. Shoplifters say that they're caught, this is a staggering statistic to me, shoplifters say that they are caught an average of only once every 48 times they shoplift, and only charged 50% of that time. I was looking this week, and I found actually a whole resource manual to help you shoplift. You can go online, and you can find tips for shoplifters. This is how rampant this is in our culture. A recent study by the Walmart Loss Prevention Division, they said they experienced 1 million shoplifting incidents in their stores every year with up to $77 million stolen from their stores each year. This is a huge issue. How about the whole area of embezzlement? People who are charged with operating the expenses of their company or their bank or their corporation, though those closest to the finances are those often who steal from that corporation. Bank employees, comptrollers, CFOs, accountants, and even pastors. Unfortunately, we hear even in Grand Rapids, just in the last couple of years, have heard of at least two pastors who have been guilty of embezzlement, stealing from the very shepherds or the flocks that they shepherd. How about extortion? Using your power, your authority, your position to illicitly gain money from people to threaten them into paying you money lest you reveal something about them? How about dishonest business practices and scams, taking people to to the task by tricking them into buying something that you know is not worth what they're paying for or engaging in some sort of multi-level marketing technique or pyramid scheme? All of these are examples of thievery that seems to so captivate our culture. Now, here's what I want you to do. Don't tune out at this point. Because at this point, all of you are saying, yep, no armed robbery here. I'm not an embezzler. I don't extort. So at this point, you are tempted to check out and say, yep, that's good for those other people that may be doing those things, but not for me. But you need to wait. Because you're going to see that there are some very subtle forms of stealing that I would surmise some of us have been guilty of. There's something about stealing that appeals to the flesh, isn't there? All of us, I think, would admit that as a child, we were at times guilty of stealing. I will admit that. Mom and Dad, sorry, I have to admit it. I think I stole something at some point from a candy store. There's something, some sort of fleshly attraction in us that that wants to take what doesn't belong to us and, and then try and see if we can get away with it. Because the sinful flesh our old man has this built-in inclination to steal and take what is not ours but you see when we come to christ that's no longer part of us when we come to christ that's part of our old nature that's part of our old being that that doesn't characterize us anymore and so paul's point here in ephesians chapter 4 is you've put that off so don't let it characterize you anymore so what I want to do for a time this morning is I want to kind of flesh this out for you. And I want to give you three instructions. 
And the first one is to put off stealing. The second one is to put on sharing. And the third one is, uh, actually the second one is to put on hard work. And the third one is to practice sharing. We'll look at the first one with you, to put off stealing. And you can see it here in verse 28. Look what Paul says very clearly. There's no ambiguity here. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. Is that hard to understand? There's no ambiguity here. God doesn't stutter here. He doesn't have a, a speech impediment. God is very clear. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. This is the word klepto. Let none of you be kleptos. And if you are a klepto, make sure you put your kleptoing away. That's what he's saying. It's where we get our word kleptomaniac, a person who is obviously given to this sin. It may be helpful to understand the milieu of that day and that there were many who had been forced to appeal to stealing to meet their needs. There was no welfare system as there is in our day, in our country. And so when someone was out of work or someone was unable to provide for their family or their needs, oftentimes in that culture they would have turned to stealing. Just read Titus chapter 2. The slaves did the same thing. They oftentimes uh, went to stealing and so they were told not to steal. And so this was something that was part and parcel of the culture of that day. It was likely a very real problem in the Ephesian city. And it's possible that many of these people in the Ephesian church had been saved out of that. They'd come to Christ, they'd heard the gospel, they'd repented of their sins, they'd been transformed according to what Paul says here, and now they're new creatures, but this old sin of stealing kind of came back to them. And so here they are, believers in the church who are pilfering. We think it was taking place because the command here in verse 28 is a present tense command. Let him who steals, steal no longer. So those of you who are practicing stealing right now, Paul says, stop. So we believe that perhaps many of these believers were still engaged in thievery. And so Paul says, that's not you anymore. <laughs> it used to be that that was once part and parcel of your old nature, but that's not you anymore. And that's not us anymore either. What I want to do for just a few moments is I want to give you a biblical theology of stealing, right? Let me just give you some real uh, simple principles to help you kind of flesh out and understand what Paul is saying here. First, the reason we need to put off stealing is because it's against the civil law. Let me just give you six or seven uh, principles that help us understand the characteristics of stealing. First, it is against the civil law. God has given us government. He has allowed government to be... The ones who facilitate order within a society. He's given us government as a minister of God to do good. Romans 13 tells us that. He's given us governing authorities to make sure that we're protected and we're safe. And so our government has wisely stated that stealing is wrong. It's illegal. It's not to be engaged in by any person in this, the country that we live in. And so first and foremost, we have to say that stealing is against the civil law. Very easy to understand. To steal is to break the law, and to break the law is to break the law of the government that God has, himself has ordained. Secondly, it is against God's law. It's against God's law. Not only is it against the civil law, this instruction is also included in the law of God. And if you know the Ten Commandments well, you'd certainly be able to pull this one out as one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's perhaps one of the most easily rem remembered and recognized. Exodus chapter 20 tells us, you shall not steal. And actually the King James Version, I think, sounds a little bit better. Thou shalt not steal. 
That's a little more authoritative that way, doesn't it? It's a command that's repeated in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Two verses later in the book of Leviticus, it's also repeated. Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. Very important to understand. Why would God prohibit his people, the nation of Israel, to steal? It's not just a nice thing to say you shouldn't steal. There's something here that's far deeper than that. Let me explore that with you just for a moment. In the Old Testament, the prohibition against stealing was primarily to ensure that the goods and the material wealth of a nation did not end up in the hands of a few key individuals. God wanted to prevent that from happening. He didn't want the wealth and the possessions to accumulate in the hands of a few. And so he gave Israel some very specific regulations. Some regulations which prevented that and which ensured the equal distribution of wealth and possessions within the nation, his people. There was no welfare system. This was the welfare system. And so you remember, let me give you some examples. After seven years, all debts were to be retired. And at the end of seven years, all slaves were to be released. And at the end of 70 years, all the land was to go back to its rightful owner. And God instructed his people to make sure that the corners of the fields were left unharvested or ungleaned so that the poor people could come and and take from there their food. This was the system that God put in place to ensure that his people would be protected and that the wealth and possessions of the nation would not be distributed into the hands of a few select people. So the command to not steal is part of that instruction. But there's something more at stake here. It's this, it's that the nation was to be a nation that was to shine the light of God. They were to be a different people. They were to be unique. They were to be set apart. They were to be a a light to the Gentiles and a nation of people that would show and point to the one true God. How do you do that? You don't be like the nations around you. What do the nations around you do? They stole. And so God, in his infinite Wisdom says to his people, don't be like those other nations. Do not steal. Why? So you can be a different people, a distinct nation that I can show my existence and my grace through you as a nation. So it's bigger than just, hey, you shouldn't steal other people's stuff. For the Old Testament law, it's far bigger than that. It has huge implications for the nation itself. So it's a command that's clearly given in God's law in the Old Testament, and it's also repeated in the New Testament. Jesus himself reiterated this command, you shall not steal, in Matthew chapter 19. Paul repeated it in Titus chapter 2. He said, slaves are not to pilfer, they're not to take from their masters. And so to steal is not only to, to violate the civil law of the land, it is to violate God's moral law. So we need to understand that. There's a third principle that we need to understand as it comes to this issue, and it's this. It violates the principle that God owns all. It violates the principle that God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything is God's. He owns it all. Everything you possess Everything you wear, everything in your home, everything in your possession is not yours. It's not mine. God owns it. 
Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that it contains, you have founded them. So there's a very clear statement throughout the scriptures that God owns it all. It's all his. And so to steal is not just to take something that belongs to someone else. It's to take something that ultimately belongs to God. That's why in Proverbs 30 verse 9, It says that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, Solomon recognized that to steal is ultimately to profane the name of God whose stuff he's taking. Let me give you some other principles. Fourthly, it does harm to others. Stealing does harm to others, and it's always detrimental to the victim of stealing. I remember when we lived in Spokane, we uh, had a detached garage, and we woke up one Sunday morning to go to church, and the garage doors open, and the doors of the van are open, and stuff is strewn throughout our garage, and our CDs are stolen, and our sunglasses are gone. Actually, we were okay with the CDs because they were Christian CDs, and so we were happy to share those with whoever got them. We hope they listened to them, and they're still enjoying them. But it does harm to the victim, doesn't it? It does harm to the person that you're stealing. We woke up with a sense of, hey, that's our stuff, right? It does harm to them emotionally. It does harm to them financially. They have to buy something to replace what, they've, what has been stolen from them. It also potentially hurts them physically. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who was walking along the road, and, and he, was, he was robbed, but he wasn't just robbed. He was beaten. He was left for dead on the side of the road. Stealing hurts people. It hurts them emotionally. It hurts them financially. It has the potential to hurt them physically as well. And so it violates the second greatest commandment, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so any form of stealing violates the second greatest commandment. You're to love, you're to serve, you're to care for those around you. And so when you take their stuff, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Fifthly, there's a fifth principle. It demonstrates discontentment and a lack of trust in God. When we steal and take things that do not belong to us, it demonstrates discontentment and a lack of trust in God. So scripture is so clear about this. As believers, we are to be a people who are content, thankful, trusting the Lord for his provision for our families and our lives. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God knows what you need. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. But when you steal, you demonstrate a heart of discontentment. You demonstrate ultimately a heart of lack of trust in God for his provision for you and his ability to provide for you. You trust in yourselves rather than God. Six, it's the mark of an unbeliever. It's the mark of a false believer. Stealing is truly the mark of someone who doesn't know Christ. One of the twelve was a thief. Judas stole. Remember the story when Jesus was ministering and a woman came up to him with a perfume jar and she broke it and spread it over him. It says that he said this, Judas had said, hey, well, you shouldn't do that. You should give that money to the poor. And it says that he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he, Judas, was a thief and he had 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Thievery demonstrates a heart that doesn't know Christ. This was Judas's problem. He was a thief to the core. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, gives us the roll call of those who go to hell. Paul, Paul is very clear in here. He says, you don't go to heaven. You do not inherit the kingdom of God if you're a fornicator and an idolater and an adulterer, effeminate, homosexual, nor a thief. Nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by thievery, you don't know Christ. That's what Paul says. The great joy, though, is the very next verse says you can be forgiven. But such were some of you. It's not you anymore. When you come to Christ, you're done. Your, your old nature is gone. You're a new creation. And so you don't have to be a thief anymore. God can forgive thievery. There's one other principle I want you to understand. It's that stealing incurs punishment. It incurs punishment. Do you know that hell is populated with thieves? Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21 say, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders and they did not repent of their sorceries or their immorality nor of their thefts. Hell is populated with thieves and it will bring punishment in this life or the next. What I want you to see from all of these principles and from the command in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, let him who steals, steal no longer, is that there are no qualifications given here, right? There's no qualification given. It doesn't say, thou shalt not steal unless you're really in need and don't know where else to turn. Thou shalt not steal unless your employer is taking advantage of you and you know it, and it's okay. You shall not steal unless it's a good cause. There's no qualifications. So I hate to burst your bubble, but all you Robin Hood fans, great story, great legend. We all champion the one who, who steals from the poor, to steals from the rich to care for the poor. That's a great story. They, they steal from the rich people and make sure that they, they give to the poor and they, they help those people. Yeah, that's great. But the underlying principle of the story is it's stealing. We forget that. Now, up to this point, I'm presuming most of you are saying, yep, good, check, not a thief. I'm, I don't dip in the money drawer at work. I, I don't walk off with stuff from the store. I understand that. So, let me show you how subtle this can be. And let us examine ourselves to see if perhaps some of us might be guilty of this sin without really knowing it. Let me give you some possible areas for you to evaluate your life to see if this is an area. First, robbing your employer of time. Do you show up late to work? Do you leave early from work? Do you misrepresent on your time card the amount of hours that you have put in for that day? That's all stealing. You send personal emails, surf the internet on company time. No, it's okay. If, you're, if your employer says, hey, you can get a few minutes a day to do that, no problem. That, that's understandable. That's fine. But if you're spending hours on 
their time and on their schedule, surfing the internet and sending your own personal emails, you're stealing from that company. Not giving a full day's labor for your pay. Taking unjustified sick days. You do that? I really got to get this project done. And I think I feel kind of bad. I'm not coming into work today. Friends, that's stealing from your employer. Taking longer breaks than allowed, reading books and magazines on the job, operating a business on the side while you're at work. It's all stealing. I was reading this week that it's calculated that time theft will cost the American economy as much as $70 billion a year by people who are at work, not working. Let me suggest a second area. Taking items from your employer that are not yours. This is easy to do. And and again, if the employer says, hey, there's a few things here that if you need, help yourself to them. But if you don't have that permission and you kind of glean some postage stamps for yourself every once in a while, that's stealing. A few paper clips here and there, a few pens, pencils, using the copy machine for your personal work, your personal projects. You have permission to do that. If not, you're stealing. You ask your secretary to do your personal work for you. That's stealing. Do you pad your expense account and kind of add in a few extra expenses there that are really not related to your business? That's stealing. And it's so easy to justify this, isn't it? It's so easy to say, well, you know, I just put in a lot of extra time and they're not paying for me for that, so I'm just going to kind of take... It's so easy to justify. It's so easy to say, well, I'm, I'm worth a whole lot more than they're paying me, and so I can be justified in this. I can do this. That's stealing. How about refusing to pay your debts? Borrowed money from somebody or the bank and signed on the dotted line, I will repay this, and you renege. That's stealing. I think we even have to be careful of bankruptcy. As Christians, I understand that there are times when, when believers as well need to declare bankruptcy and, and uh, get some help. There are certain circumstances in life where that's necessary, and, and our government provides the provision for that. That's understandable. And helps you through that time, but you need to think through bankruptcy. You can't pay now. You need to make arrangements to pay in the future because potentially you could be stealing. How about infringing on copyrighted material? Everyone's starting to squirm a little bit now. Got any bootlegged copies of movies in your house? How about on your computer? You got, you got a few downloaded CDs that you didn't pay for? Everyone's jabbing each other sitting next to them right now, huh? <laughs> Getting a little uncomfortable. Turn the AC up. Listen, you, you download music from the internet that you didn't pay for? You are depriving the person who provided that for you of their royalties. That's stealing. Pay them what they are due. How about not paying your taxes? Or underpaying your taxes? Kind of cheat a little bit here and there. You do a little work in the numbers. Stealing. How about borrowing something and not returning it? You ever do that? You ever say, hey, can I borrow this? And I'll get it back to you in, in a week. Two weeks gone. Three weeks, month, year. Still sitting in your house. You have any intention of returning it? If you don't, it's stealing. 
why I keep a record of the books that go out of my library. I've found over the years that they tend to walk away and never come back. You're welcome to borrow any book in my library. Come help yourself. Take them out as much as you want. But I will take your name and I will find you. (laughs) How about just a general category of using what's not yours, taking what's not yours? You plagiarize stuff? You you take work that's not yours and put your name on it, kids, young people in school. You you take term papers, you taking credit for work that you didn't do. That's stealing. How about your Wi-Fi? Got a neighbor that doesn't secure their Wi-Fi? Hey, free Wi-Fi. That's stealing. Take a little dip in dad's money off the shelf. He won't miss any. You ever keep what a clerk overpays you in the store? That's stealing. You ever keep property that you found without making any effort to return it? Did you know that the Old Testament required you to make an effort to return what's not yours? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment, and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countryman, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. Did you know that finders, keepers, losers, weepers doesn't work? That's not in the scripture. Now, I understand we're not under Old Testament law and we're not under the whole ceremonial and civil law of the Old Testament, but there's a principle here. You find something, make an effort to bring it back. Two summers ago, Julie and I were in Maine, lost our camera, a little point-and-shoot camera. We were looking for this thing and we were so excited. We stumbled upon the camera. Same cover, same box, same camera. But it wasn't ours. It was someone else's camera, lost in the same spot, totally different person, with the same case and same camera, but it wasn't our camera. And so we were kind of thinking, well, still found a camera, didn't we? Lost ours, found another one. We were, no, we can't keep this camera. This one's not ours. And so Julie, through her diligent effort, took about four months to find this person. She was a sleuth, and she looked up people on the internet and found a gravestone and found the person related to that person and amazing she found the owner of this camera and so sent it back and made contact and this woman was elated we got our camera back thank you so much we don't care so much about the camera we want the pictures and she was so grateful that she sent us clam chowder so it was wonderful but it made her day she was so grateful to have back what was hers and we need to be those who do the same lest we be guilty of stealing. Let me turn the screws a little tighter. Do you, do you love to get a good deal? You say, huh, come on, how can that be stealing? Listen, I love a good deal just like the rest of you do. I'm Dutch, all right? I love good deals. But lots of people pride themselves on getting a good deal when in fact they may be getting such a good deal that they're actually stealing from the person they're getting the deal from. A little old widow who's lost her husband and Wants to sell all of his tools. I don't know what they're worth. Just take everything for $20. Just take it. You have a choice at that point. 
You take advantage of that woman who has no value, no understanding of the value of what she has. Or do you say, no, ma'am, this is really what it's worth. And pay her what she's due. Let me give you one final category. Failing to give to the Lord is stealing. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Old Testament Israel robbed God by not giving their tithes and their offerings. They had stolen from him what was rightfully his by divine law. We're not under Old Testament law. The tithe is not an operation today in the New Testament church. The principle is give liberally, give generously, give sacrificially, give regularly. That's the principle that we operate in under the church today. But the question or the principle still stands, are you robbing God by not giving to him? We're more guilty of this command than we think we are, aren't we? Paul says, let him who steals, steal no longer. There's a second instruction I want to show you. It's number two, put on hard work. What is the antidote to stealing? What is the cure for this? What's the remedy? How do we be believers who don't fall prey to this sin? How do we make sure that we are those who do put off this kind of vice and put on the corresponding virtue? What is it, that corresponding virtue, that keeps us from falling into this sin? He tells us here in verse 28, look what he says. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. The antidote to stealing is hard labor, working hard, working diligently, being those who use your hands to provide for your own needs. This is the cure for stealing. Listen, the thief doesn't stop being a thief when he stops stealing. The thief stops being a thief when he starts working hard. It's not enough to put off the vice. You have to put on the corresponding virtue as well. Paul's point here is all the ingenuity, all the effort, all the diligence that once you devoted to stealing are now to be given to hard work, diligence, labor, faithfulness in your job. And so Paul is telling us to do something here that he himself did. He was a hard worker. He was a tent maker. Paul was not one who took advantage of his position and took what was not his. No, he worked hard. He said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You recall, brothers, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He says, we worked hard, we worked diligently, we didn't want to be a burden to you, we didn't want to make you go out of your way to provide for our needs, so we worked, labored hard, day and night, we were tent makers. And he says to the believers in Thessalonica, you do the same. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands. 
That doesn't just mean you need to be a manual laborer. It means that you need to use your hands and abilities that God has given you to provide for your needs and to provide for your family. Work is good. Work is a blessing. Work is a gift from God. Did you know that the Jews had a saying? They said, if you do not teach your son a trade, you teach him to be a thief. Jesus had a trade. He was a carpenter. Work is good, friends. Work is God's gift to us to enable us to provide for our families so that we won't be tempted to steal. Over in 2 Thessalonians, I want you to see this. Go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul continues these instructions. Apparently there were in the Thessalonican church a group of people who were idle, thinking that the resurrection was going to come. Hey, Jesus is coming back, so we can just kind of hang out and sit and he'll, he'll come. And they weren't working, they weren't diligent, they weren't providing for their needs. And so Paul confronts this. He says, this is an issue in your church. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, look what he says. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. See, Paul says, as an apostle, we have rights. We could have used those rights. Verse 8, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. You see, as an apostle, he had some rights. He could have asked them to support his ministry. He could have asked them to provide for him, to provide food, lodging, to provide some financial assistance for his travels. He could have asked that. That was part and parcel of being an apostle. He could have exercised that right, but he says, I didn't do that because I didn't want to be a burden to you. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You see the principle? You don't work, you don't eat. You, you want to be lazy, don't expect to have your needs provided for. Now, this is not bootstraps theology. This is not where you just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I'm going to make myself a, a self-made man. That's not what he's talking about here. He is blessing work here. God is showing that work is good, that work is blessed by God because it keeps you from being tempted to steal. So the antidote to stealing is hard work. It's diligence. It's being faithful in your responsibilities at work and with work that God has entrusted to you. This is God's plan. Now, he's not talking here about those who can't work. And he's not saying, you know, every single person in the world needs to work. There are certain qualifications. Go to Titus 2 and look at his expectations for men and women. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other factors here. But his basic plan is for everyone to work who is able to do so and provide for their needs. This is his instructions. The thief's not willing to do that. They want a free handout, but not the believer. We're new creations. We're different. We've been changed by Christ. The gospel needs to affect your work. And we don't think about that very often. We don't think about how the gospel has an impact upon how we engage in labor, but it does because labor shows that we've been transformed by Christ. And when we're faithful at our jobs, we're showing that we are different people. 
I'm telling you, that's why you as a Christian, you can't be one of those who complains about your work. We hear that all the time. I'm so sick of my job. I hate my work. I wish I had another job. Long for retirement, looking for the day when you just stop. And we kind of cultivate this bad attitude toward work and we cultivate this negative aspect on the work that God has given to us. And we need to be those who don't do that. We need to be those who demonstrate a heart of gratitude for work. Do you understand that? Your work is a blessing from God to provide for your needs and to provide for your family. This is a message that we need to hear today. The church needs to hear that work is a blessing. I wish we had time to develop a a theology of work. Work is not bad. Work did not incur after Genesis 3. God gave Adam and Eve work to do before the fall. Work is blessed by God. Thirdly, not only do we need to put off stealing and put on hard work, we need to practice sharing. Look at verse 28 back in Ephesians chapter 4. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with one who has need. This is why we work to provide for our needs, to labor diligently, to meet the needs of our family, but ultimately so that we can have enough extra to help those in need around us. You see, it's a completely opposite attitude to the thief. The thief says, I've got needs. I'm going to take what is yours because I need it. I don't care about you. But the Christian says something different. The Christian says, I'm going to labor and I'm going to work hard so that I can be used of God to meet your needs. That's what the gospel does. The gospel reorients your priorities. This is what the early church did. Acts 2 They sold all things. They had things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them as each one had need. Acts chapter 4 says that they gave to meet the needs of those around them. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Macedonian or the churches in Corinth gave to the churches in Macedonia out of their poverty. They, They gave liberally. They were able to meet the needs of that church. So you understand what this says? Go work hard. Get a good job. Be faithful in your work. Take the raise. Don't feel guilty about taking more money. Praise God. Give Him the glory and the thanks for for giving you a job that enables you to provide for your families. And if there's extra, then you get to give it to those in need around you. That's the heart of a true believer. You know, I know Christian businessmen who make tons of money and they give a lot of it away. Praise God for those people. Right? You can't send everyone to the mission field, but you can have godly men and women who make lots of money for the glory of Christ and give that to support missions and give that to support the church and help others who are truly in need within the body of Christ. That's gospel work. So, this is the antidote to stealing. You work hard, you be diligent. You give to those liberally around you. This is how we put off stealing. Friends, you see how the gospel impacts us? This isn't just moral theology, go be a good person. This is gospel transformed living. Pray with me. Father, thank you.
for the gospel. Thank you for Christ. And thank you, Father, for how he has changed us. We don't want to live different lives so people pat us on the backs and say, well done, that's great, good people you are. But we want to live different lives to show the reality of the gospel and to make people see that Christ truly does change us. Oh God, let us not be guilty of stealing. Instead, let us labor hard, working with our hands, blessing those around us, and putting the gospel into practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.